We continue with our message series, Lesser Known Teachings of Jesus. And um, of all the, and I think, I think next week is our last one in the series, so this is the second to last one. But of all the ones that I'm teaching on, this is probably the lesser known of all the lesser known uh, teachings of Jesus we're going to look at. In fact, I'm going to guess that probably many of you in here don't know this passage. Um, if you heard it, you, you probably don't remember it. Um, I'm going to almost suggest you've never heard a message on it. Um, let's take a look at it this morning from Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 to 24. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. And he says, Woe to you, Chorazin, and woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than what it will be for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this very day. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. So I ask you, does Jesus accept everyone? Because in the church today, in this politically cor correct, highly refined, uh, processed version of Jesus that is cherry-picked from just a handful of p passages in Scripture, uh, yeah, we, we believe and, and we hear that Jesus, he, he loves everyone. Jesus accepts everyone. But is that what this passage says? This passage that you guys have never heard preached, and most of you in here probably didn't even know it was in the Bible. It's clear, like looking at this, the answer, does Jesus accept everyone? No. Jesus is, pre is preaching condemnation on these different cities. He's preaching not only condemnation on the cities, but he's preaching condemnation on the people who live in those cities. You see, this is why I, I'm glad I did this series. Because our, once again, our concept of Jesus is just, it's limited to a handful of kind of more feel-good passages, and we never talk about this. It's kind of big for a refrigerator magnet, but I don't think you have this on your refrigerator at your house. But in fact, Jesus is picking out three specific cities and speaking condemnation upon them. And those cities, once again, are Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. And these are significant cities because they lie on the very northern shore of the Sea of Galilee in almost a triangular fashion. 
they're significant because what did the scriptures say? It said Jesus began to denounce the towns where most of his miracles were performed. So in these three cities, in these three towns, probably about 60 to 70% of all the miracles Jesus did was done for them to see. In fact, Jesus lived in one of these towns. Jesus lived in Capernaum. Jesus is condemning the very town that he lives in. Bethsaida, you remember, is where Jesus healed that blind man by spitting in the dirt and making mud and putting it over his eyes. Now, here's what I need you to understand. So Jesus is doing about 70%, 60 to 70% of his miracles in this very small area amongst these three towns. Let me give you an appreciation for the size of these towns. Chorazin, as they've excavated, it was about 25 acres. Now, let me give you a point of reference. If you go from the senior center right there, this is all our property to the apartment. So if you consider the church and the field next to it, that's 10 acres. So if you go two and a half times it, you double this property and then add another half on top of it, that's the size of these cities. And so in Chorazin, it was expected that there's probably about 500 to 1,500 people that live there. Okay, that's it. But, but if you've ever grown up in a small town, you know that when something happens somewhere in that town, everyone in that town knows about it. Did you hear what happened over on such and such street? So as Jesus is doing 60 to 70% of his miracles in these small towns, which were normal in size for Jesus' day, and you're only dealing with somewhere between 500 and 1,500 people, they're all hearing about it. But yet, they're not willing to repent. So what does Jesus do? He compares these three Israelite cities to three pagan cities, to three wicked towns. The first two he compares to Tyre and Sidon, which are pagan ancient Phoenician cities that became um, significant Roman port cities in Jesus' day. And what he says is, listen, if these pagans had, had seen the miracles that you, these cities, these towns of Israel had seen, they would have repented a long time ago. They would have put on sackcloth. They would have put on ashes. And he states it will be more bearable on judgment day for these pagan cities that don't even believe in God than for these towns of Israel that did not repent after seeing all the signs that Jesus gave. And then this last town, this town that Jesus himself lives in, Capernaum, Jesus compares to Sodom. Of all the cities of, of the Bible that are ever mentioned, Sodom is, is considered the most wicked. It's known for its wickedness of its homosexuality, but it was wicked in, in a variety of different ways. It's so wicked that we're told in the Old Testament that God comes to Abraham and he says he, he's heard of the wickedness and he's going to see for itself if it's as wicked as it is because he's going to go and destroy it. And that's where God goes and pulls Abraham's nephew Lot out b before he destroys it. So if you think of all the wicked, God didn't go around just raining fire and brimstone on all these bad cities. Sodom was exceedingly wicked. 
And did you see what Jesus said about Sodom and about Capernaum, the town in which he lived? He said that if the miracles were performed for Sodom, remember, Sodom was long before Jesus. Sodom never knew of Jesus. But he says if Sodom would have had the opportunity to see those miracles, it would still be in existence to this day. It would have never had to be destroyed. But then look at what he says. It will be more bearable on judgment day for Sodom than for you. So Sodom was already judged. It was destroyed. But we see that there's another judgment that's going to come. And on that second judgment, it's going to be more bearable for the most wicked city on, on the face of the earth than what it will be for the people of Capernaum. What does this text, these, these, these words of Jesus that you didn't even really know were in the Bible, how do they still speak to us today in the first day of 2023? Well, it speaks to us this way. We live in an increasingly wicked world. And the reason the world is increasingly wicked is because the nations of the world are becoming increasingly wicked. And the reason the nations of the, this world are becoming increasingly wicked is because the cities themselves are becoming increasingly wicked. And if he says this to, to those who saw his miracles, that, that it's going to be more bearable for the most wicked city on the face of the earth than, than them because they were not willing to repent. We live post-Jesus, right? So we, didn't, we haven't gotten to see with our own eyes what Jesus did, but, but it's been recorded for us in Scripture. What, what is he going to say to us? Because we're not like Sodom. We're not like, you know, way before when Jesus comes, we're way after Jesus comes, and, and we know what he, he, what he did. Yet we still choose not to repent. So the question is, is, as the world becomes more wicked and nations become more wicked and cities become more wicked, how do we interact with them? I mean, do we just accept them? And accept their wickedness and, you know, God loves everyone. He accepts every, everyone. Do we, like, when in Rome, like, if, if, if that's acceptable in society, then, hey, I'm going to do it too? Or do we actually condemn these cities in which we live and are a part of as Jesus condemned the city in which he lived? The good news is we don't have to decide that for ourselves. The scripture actually tells us the answer to that. Every time I, I preach out of the Bible, I try to encourage, encourage you that you always have to look at the context. You can't lift a Bible passage just out, out from the rest of the Bible. You have to look at what it says before it and after it. And I've also said with, to you before that, like, the Bible wasn't written in chapters and verses. It, it's put in later so that I can say, turn to Matthew 11, and we all know where to go to. It was just written as a letter. So... I just showed to you Matthew chapter 11, which, once again, the chapter isn't real. The number's not real. But if you just back up a, a few paragraphs before that to what we call Matthew chapter 10, Jesus tells us how we're to interact with the wicked world around us because he's speaking to his disciples. And he tells them 
how they're to interact with it. Look at Matthew chapter 10, 11 to 15. Jesus says, whatever town or village you enter, he's talking to his disciples, whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. And as you enter the home, give that home your greeting. And if the home is deserving, then let your peace rest on it. If it is not deserving, let your peace return to you. For if anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home, leave that town. In fact, shake the dust off your feet. For truly, I tell you, it will be more bearable for the wicked city of Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. You know, the first thing that jumps out to me when I look at this passage is it says, Jesus tells his disciples, when you enter these towns, look for a worthy person. And in our politically correct version of Jesus in the church, everyone's worthy. If I was to say, you know, is everyone worthy? You'd ever be like, yeah, everyone's worthy. No, everyone's not worthy. If they were, Jesus wouldn't say, go and find a worthy person. And then he says, if the home's deserving, well, everyone's deserving. No, not, not every home's deserving. Not every town's deserving. Not every person's deserving. Not, they're not all worthy. Who, who is deserving and who is worthy? Not how perfect the person is by their own actions, but for those who have a heart for the Lord and are willing to listen to his word. Those are the people that are deserving. Those are the people who are worthy. So Jesus says this. As you enter into that town, find a, find a worthy home. Find a worthy person and give it your greeting. Now, it's interesting in, in Israel, and as I understand it, in the East in general, if you're a stranger into a town, um, it's not uncommon for you to just invite yourself into their home. We don't do that in the West. In fact, it's the exact opposite. If you follow the news of Buffalo and their blizzard, it, it, it's horrific, the stories that you hear, that some people were stranded on the roads, no one could get to them, and they had no choice as they were running out of gas in their cars to go home to home to home to try to find refuge and not die in the storm. And there's this one guy that literally went to 10 different homes asking him if he could come in, not only asking, but willing to pay 500 bucks just to be let in. And 10 different homes said no. I, I can't even comprehend that. He's a person of faith. And what's interesting is he said, you know what? I think that was the work of the Lord because no one would let me into their homes. I ended up coming across 10 other people or so that were stranded in their vehicles. And he ended up breaking into a school and, and really brought them to safety and were able to save their lives. But that's just how different our culture is today in America than what it was in Israel. In Israel, you're, you're a stranger to a town. You, you, you greet someone, just kind of invite yourself in. Hey, I appreciate you opening up your home to me. And they're thinking, I don't remember asking. And Jesus says that you know, once you've done that, 
once you've been polite and you've agreed to the person, then offer your peace upon that home. And that's not just like a greeting. That's not just a, a well wish. That when you offered your peace, your, your blessing, you know, your peace is like a literal blessing that, that, that may God this and may God that, you know, bless you for your openness and, and for receiving me. And he says, if they're deserving of it, if, if they're willing to receive you, if they're willing to receive what you're teaching them about me, then let your peace remain on that house. Stay with them and, and, and may they be blessed because of their, their faithfulness. He says, if they don't, if they don't accept you, or if they don't accept the words that you're teaching them about me, he said, dust Shake the dust off your feet. Find a different person. Find a different town. It is going to be far better for Sodom and Gomorrah, the most wicked places on the face of the earth, than it will be for those people who did not receive you when judgment day comes. And you know what that tells me first is, you know what, as we go and we, we, we share Christ with people, a little different than how they did it then, we don't invite ourselves in, in their home, but maybe we have opportunity at work or through relationship or whatever, that, that you know what, we can't control whether or not they, they, they'll accept it. All we can control is sharing it. It's going to be up to the Holy Spirit as to whether or not they receive that or not. But notice that Jesus doesn't say that as you go upon a home and if they don't receive you, just keep working at it, keep sharing. Because I think sometimes like, and we probably have people like this in our lives, maybe family members or friends, and we just keep working on them and we keep working on them and we keep working on them. Well, I think Satan uses that sometimes in which like there's other people who are worthy because they're more than willing to receive the message that you have about Jesus if you would just go and tell them. But we can occupy ourselves with people who won't receive it to the point that we never get to these. And I really think that's how Satan oftentimes works against us and the church. The Jesus of 2023 is a Jesus of acceptance. The Jesus of the Bible that I just read to you is a Jesus of repentance. In the last 30 years or so, I've seen this in my own life, especially in the last 30 years, is that the message of the church used to be a Jesus of repentance, a God calling us to repentance. But all I really hear nowadays from preachers nowadays, all I hear from Christians, and if I would have polled you guys before I shared this lesser known teaching of Jesus, you would have all said, you know, God accepts everyone. God's, that's just what we've begun to teach that Jesus accepts everyone, and therefore now the church is to be accepting of everyone. Why? Because we cherry-pick certain passages and we ignore other ones like what I just shared. We're like, but the Bible tells a story of the tax collector. Like, our, the church's example of, of, of why God is accepting God and Jesus was accepting, even though Jesus is cursing three towns and all of their inhabitants— in one case, to a tax collector, oh, he gave him a big hug. No, to that tax collector, he also preached repentance. And guess what that tax collector did? 
He repented and he said, for everyone that I've robbed from, I am going to return four times what I stole. Guess what that's called? Repentance. He didn't accept that type of a person. But he accepted and forgave because of repentance. Well, yeah, but then, then there's that woman at the well that was you know, caught in adultery that was about to be stoned. God, right, you see, Jesus was just accepting of everyone. No, he told that woman, go and sin no more. And when you don't sin anymore, that's called repentance. Jesus is consistent. He's not a God of acceptance. He's a God of repentance. And because as a church, we don't call out society anymore, we just accept rather than call society to repentance, the church has become irrelevant. Let me just say that again. The church in modern times has become irre irrelevant because all we are is a mirror of society. We don't call society to repentance. We just accept it. And because we accept every kind of like behavior and action and attitude in society, guess what? We accept it here in church. And, and because the church doesn't offer anything any different to society than what society already has, what values the church? There is no value to the church. If God is really just like as welcoming and accepting of sin as Satan is, but he's just a little nicer about it, why do we need God? And the answer is we don't. And so we sit here and wonder like, why is the church like decreasing in numbers? Why is it becoming irrelevant? Because all we do is mirror society and we don't even give an alternative to it anymore. Let me help you to understand the irrelevancy of the church another way. There's this guy that um, put out this website, and it's called something like um, Irrelevant or Not Necessary Inventions or something like that. And he, his whole deal is to come up with inventions that aren't really like needed and necessary, uh, but nonetheless, they're inventions, and he sells these things. But he's not real successful at it because it's not really much different than what you can buy anyway. So I, I know we've already celebrated Christmas, but you can buy these things. So to keep this in mind for next year. The, the guy sells a snout snuggie. Remember that next Christmas? Now, have you seen anyone walking around with snout snuggies? I haven't, because why? Well, because there's something called a scarf. Or, or maybe like a ski mask that, you know, will keep the nose warm. It's just not much different than other things that we have, so no one needs to go walk around like that. This next one's a little cool, hover umbrella. Now that's a little neat, but you know, rather than holding, a, <laughs> rather than holding the pole in your hand, now you just got to hold the remote control, you know, to keep it over your head. So what do you really gain? So you probably haven't seen a lot of people walk around with the hover umbrella. And then there's like the air stick. This one scares me a little bit. 
It's like a, a, an ear pod. It's, but it like, look, looks like a toothbrush hanging from your ear. I mean, I, I don't know if that's like an antenna that picks up radio stations too. I'm a little nervous. You bump that thing and that thing jams in your ear. You probably haven't seen a lot of people walking around in those. Why? We kind of have something that does that already. My personal favorite, avocado on a stick. And you know, when you find that your deodorant's failing, you can use it for that as well. Now, as ingenious as that is to put avocado in what appears to be a deodorant stick and you could eat it that way, how does that benefit you when you can like just take an avocado and do that? And then here's the last one, sun shaders. Now, we're familiar with sunglasses, but this is more like the blinds at your house. Now, it works, but why in the world would you, would you get them? Because you already have sunglasses that do the same thing. Here's my point. If the church just mirrors society, why should people go to church? You can get society in your soccer club. You can get society in your dance studio. You can get society at your YMCA or wherever. And we sit here and wonder, hmm, I wonder why the church is dying. You see, the church needs to go back to offering an alternative to society in the empty way of life. And, and, and listen, there's a bunch of you in here that are like... You, Life just stinks. And the church isn't even really helping because we're not offering you an alternative to the life that you're living. We just simply sit there and endorse it, accept it, and even though you're doing a bunch of stuff to your own destruction and dysfunction. And if Jesus was so hard on these towns that saw his miracles and rejected him, how hard is Jesus going to be on the church? How hard is Jesus going to be on this modern world of 2023 when we have the good news, when we have the scriptures that declare who Jesus is, yet we still will not repent? What can save us from the wrath of God? One thing and one thing only, and that's repentance. You see, everything starts with repentance. In, in, in the baptism I did, I quoted to you from Acts 2. Well, in Acts 2, Peter gives this amazing testimony to the Jews on who Jesus was. And yet the Jews put him to death. And there's like 3,000 people that after they heard Peter's message, they, they just came to faith and they said, what should we do? And the very first thing that Peter says to them is he says, repent. Our relationship with God starts with repentance. The problem is, is we want to go straight to forgiveness with ever stopping at repentance. That's like, give me my paycheck. I don't want to work. It doesn't work that way. If you want the paycheck, you got to work. If you want forgiveness, you got to repent. It's why Jesus is calling out those towns and, and the people in those towns. 
And the problem nowadays is twofold, is that one, we're so accepting as a church, we don't call out sin. We don't call the community to repentance. We don't even call our own members to repentance. Most of us in here don't even know what wickedness is because all we're doing is what our neighbors do and what our friends do. And so we don't even know what it is that we should be repenting of. The second problem is this, is we're afraid to call out our community. We're afraid to call out our children. We're afraid to call out our family members. We're afraid to call out our friends because it is not politically appropriate. It is not culturally appropriate to call people wicked or to call actions wicked. Who am I to judge? It's what Jesus did what he told his disciples to do. We're afraid of if we do it, it's going to be called hate speech. I, I, I can't be in danger of like hate speech at work. I don't want my friends like, so I'm just not going to say anything. That's even if we know what wickedness is. The church today is far too politically correct. And we need to start by recognizing what wickedness is, what sin is. And we need to call ourselves to repentance and call our communities to repentance that we live in. You know, there's a lot of things that, that I could just like list for us now that, that we need to repent of. But I just came up with a list of some things that to me are, are really culturally appropriate that the church is getting really quiet on and, and we need to start speaking up. Let's start with abortion. You know, uh, abortion was brought back into the, um, into the headlines this past year with uh, the overturning of Roe versus Wade. And rather than celebrating that because we're calling out the community uh, for what is the wickedness of abortion, what people who were in favor of that decision, what they did to kind of soften the blow a little bit, it was like, well, this really doesn't change anything. Now it's just up to the state. So, you know what? If you live in California, if you live in New York, they're going to still allow you to have abortions until like a couple days after the baby was born. And we don't, as a church, take a stand and say, no, even though now it's been given to the states, you know, these states need to, to stop this murdering of, of human life. There's many politicians who claim to be Christian, but support it. How can that be? Well, it, What's interesting is there's a LifeWay uh, survey done in 2015, and the LifeWay survey said that 70% of people who've had abortions claim to be Christian. And, and I get it's a difficult topic, and, and, and I try to be careful how I preach it, because I know, at least for Christians who, who, who may have had one in the past and know that they shouldn't have, that there's a great amount of guilt for that. And, but, but there's forgiveness where there's guilt, and, and there's forgiveness when, when you repent and you, and you don't do that anymore. But because we won't speak about it, because we won't call it out as a church, it, most people, you have 70% of Christians that don't think that there's a problem with it. That's a problem with the church. In today's day and age, the church needs to become more vocal on racial discrimination. 
And, and, and let me speak about that because there's a lot of funny business that's, that goes on with racial discrimination. I'm talking about like real racism that the, the, the church needs to speak out against, not political type manipulations uh, of racism. There's all kinds of manufactured racism that's going on in today's world for, for voting purposes and to try to get people to vote for their candidates. That stuff needs to be called out from the church. I can't tell you like how many people I know that when they do their college applications have to explain why they're, they, they have white privilege and they should be sorry for it. Guess what? That's discrimination. I, don't, I can't even tell you how many people I know that something happens at work, there's a disagreement with a coworker, and that one coworker happens not to be white, and then that person does a, a complaint saying that, that they're being racially discriminated by, and, and then they get a call and, and have to explain, you know, how they feel about white privilege and their own white privilege. Listen, the church needs to speak out against that. That, 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 that is racism, making a group feel bad because they're white. And, and now apparently anti-Semitism is on the rise. And if indeed it is, and it's not just being fanned up for political purposes, the church needs to speak out against that. I'm hearing like Asian uh, discriminations on the rise. I, I don't know if it's real, but if it is, if it's not just being fanned for, for, for the sake of like uh, political gain, then the church needs to speak about that. The church needs to speak about all the traditional forms of racism that go on uh, against black people and so forth. We need to speak out against all of it, but we're kind of afraid to. It's only politically correct to speak out about one part of it, but what scripture teaches us is that we're all one in Christ. And why are we ashamed of that? The church needs to speak out against this wokeness that has enveloped our, our, our country over the last three years or so. And there's a great debate in, in our country over this. I'm telling you, when this stuff came out three years ago, I was like the first one to put out on the sign, woke is broke, and you have to speak out against it. it it's a tearing apart of the, of the traditional value system. I don't know if you've been hearing in the news, but Kirk Cameron has been trying to go to libraries to have story time in libraries to share um, a positive Christian message. And he's being turned away. But you can go into libraries all across America and have transgender story hour with kids, and that's accepted. The church has to speak up against, about this stuff and against this stuff. To think that somehow after thousands upon thousands of years of human history, we found a better value system than the one that God gave, I'm a little skeptical of it. Church is far too quiet. How about marriage and the breakdown of the family? You know, prior to the 1970s, uh, there, you, ha you couldn't get a divorce without cause. And we've gone from like, you better pick the right spouse because you cannot get a divorce to like, it's dating with a little extra commitment. And in the church, we don't talk about it a lot, kind of like of abortion, because we know like people who've had abortion carry a lot of guilt. And so we don't really talk about divorce that much because we know that uh, in, amongst Christians, it, there's a lot of guilt that is carried with that. So we just tend to not say anything. And it's destroying the fabric of society. How about the fact that everyone sees what a mess that marriage has become, so now everyone's just kind of choosing to live together before marriage anyways and, and never really get married? The church doesn't really speak up about that, do we? 
what about same-sex marriage? And, and, and like, it's been legal for a while, but just because it's legal in society doesn't mean the church ought not speak against it. That, that's what, what calling to repentance is. It's when society's accepting and doing behaviors that should not be accepted, the church has to speak out against it. And, and because of that, like the whole fabric of society is dis- disintegrating. If you think of a, a society like a wicker or uh, a woven basket and you just start like cutting like several of the, the strands that tie it together. I mean, you can still have a basket, but it can't support the weight it otherwise would. Why? Because the church is just too afraid to talk about it and to call society to repentance. You know what? The church needs to be a little bit more vocal about the breakdown of the church itself. We have to call ourselves to repentance. You know, the Methodists just this last year are the latest denomination that are like, you know what, culturally, um, you know, homosexual relationships, marriages, that, that's all culturally accepted. Jesus accepts everyone, right? Because we handpick, cherry pick a few Bible passages and we fail to read passages like I shared to you. So they, they just go along and, and go with it and, and they split in half over it. We need to call the church to repentance. We need to call the church to repentance for feel-good Christianity that isn't willing to preach you the passage that I just preached to you this morning. We need to call the church to repentance because there's a lot of people that think you don't really need to go to church. I can just kind of practice my faith on my own. The church is going to need to be called to repentance sooner or later because of COVID. It became far too easy to just kind of watch church online. Guess what? We need to come together and worship the Lord. I'm hearing more and more people say, like Christians, that they're against celebrating Christmas. We, we need to be called to repentance for that too. I get the fact that we don't know the actual day and month that Jesus was born, but we know that he was. So if you don't want to celebrate it on December 25th, you better celebrate it someday because it's only the greatest event in human history. And you, you probably should make that a regular celebration to, to, to do that. But the reality that we have a December, you know, society did everything that they could to rip like Christ out of Christmas. And now that there's a lot of more and more Christians that are just kind of like, yeah, we don't, we don't need that. The fact that you have trees, the fact that you do have lights, the fact that everyone goes out and spends a gazillion dollars on presents, all gives testimony to an event that took place 2,000 years ago, and it gives glory to God. To, it's a witness to God, and the culture is broken as it is. It's like, why do you say the calendar 2023? The only reason we have 2023 is that goes back to when Jesus was born. But guess what? That calendar's off by probably three years. And if you have a problem with, like, celebrating Jesus on Christmas, you probably should stop using the calendar. But the calendar itself gives testimony that something happened, that all of human history points back to this event 20, 23 years ago, even though it may have been three years off. the acceptance of homosexuality in the church. You know what? For thousands and thousands and thousands of years, for all of human history, it was always seen as a perversion and not helpful to human society. Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed for it. Now it's embraced. Not only embraced, but it's encouraged. We have a whole month to celebrate that perversion of God's creation. And, and as a result, because the church won't talk about it, now like 20% of people identify themselves as part of the LGBTQ plus minus whatever. 
and, and the church is just silent. And for those of you who like are, well, you know, there's Democrats and they just do this and Republicans. No, that's not how it works in this either. Just like a couple months ago, 17 Republican senators signed a defense of, uh, of marriage bill that really wasn't a defense of marriage. It was an attack of marriage. And, and as a result of, uh, of what they've done, they've codified uh, same-sex marriages in this country. And, and in a way that, like, give it another five years, and what I'm saying to you right now is hate speech, and I'll be arrested for it. Because the church is not willing to speak. Gender changing. When I was a kid, that was something you didn't have to worry about. Am I a boy or am I a girl? What would I like to be? When we go through like puberty and so forth, we're not comfortable with our bodies and, and, and you just we can be uncertain about many things. That just was something we never had to worry about. Now it's like, well, are you comfortable in your own skin? Would you, would you like to be some, something different? And rather than like getting help and getting counseling for people who are struggling with depression and who they are and dealing with mental illness, what we're doing is we're like encouraging them to, to make changes when like they, they're not even, they're like half the age of being able to buy a cigarette. And the church, we're just like. The highest suicide rate of any group of people in this world are those that have changed their gender. Do you think there's some mental illness involved? Do you think we could actually say that and get those people some help? And let's just talk about addiction for a second. You know what? Society is legalizing more and more drugs, and here's the problem with the church is like, if the society says it's okay, then we do. That's what we've done with same-sex marriage. It's what we've done with homosexuality. It's what we're starting to do with transgender. We just won't speak out against it. We won't call it to repentance. And so now, like, you know, more and more drugs are being legalized, and, and, and you can get your marijuana uh, in vape form or in gummy form or in the traditional smoking form. I have to tell you, I, I went out to California uh, a week or two ago for my oldest daughter's graduation, her for a master's out there in California. And I was only out there from like late Thursday night to Sunday. And I have to tell you, I saw some weird stuff. I have to tell you, I'm a very sheltered man. It smells skunk everywhere there. Walking down the beach. Is there skunk around here? For those of you who are maybe as naive as me on some of these things, that's the smell of marijuana. Going up in the mountains, you don't even see anyone, but you can smell the pot they're smoking. You got signs on the beach, no alcohol, but I mean, puff away. The Bills were playing a late-night game. I was seeing in the Hilton, I just kind of wanted a beer to watch my game with. And, and, like, as I went to the hotel lobby, I wouldn't even go buy one because some woman's, like, doing this and tripping out from her drugs she's doing. And it's like she's not even doing anything. I'm, like, disturbed. Like, do we have a possession going on here? I'm a pastor. And it's just not a big deal to anyone. My friends, 
Jesus called the world to repentance when he came in. In this world that we're a part of, we have to not embrace their wickedness. And it is our role as a church to call them to repentance, to call them to a different way of life. God's calling us to that repentance, a true repentance, not just this fake I'm sorry, but one that's sincere, one that is like in the days of the Bible, that you, you fast, you don't eat, you're so sincere about it. You put on sackcloth, you throw ashes upon yourself. And if our repentance is real, and if society's repentance is real, you better believe there's forgiveness from God. There's acceptance from God. You are worthy. If the forgiveness is not real. I'm sorry, if the repentance is not real, neither will be the forgiveness. Just join me in a word of prayer. Gracious Almighty God, we just thank and praise you for this uh, for this morning, this difficult passage that we don't even read in church. Gracious God, I just pray for, I pray for all of us in here because I just feel like we're, 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 we're like those three towns that Jesus lived in and showed his miracles, but yet we just keep going on with our merry lives and embracing the wickedness of the world around us. You've shown yourself to us in many different ways, including your word, which gives testimony to you. We just got done last week celebrating you being born into this world. Give us a heart and a desire to repent of the wickedness of this world. And as a church, help us to be bold enough to speak that call to repentance to this world and to offer a true alternative. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.